Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce Tatoris. With us is Jerry Doherty, retired senior school principal, headmaster from Scotland, who has written several books and plays and the lyrics for a number of musicals. His previous Trying Day book, written with Jim McGregor, is Prolonging the Agony, How the Anglo-American Establishment Deliberately Extended World War I by Three and a Half Years. His next Trying Day book is a novel, Beyond Revanche, The Death of La Belle Epoque, a murder mystery conspiracy set in Paris during the First World War, a page-turner soaked in historical fact. It's available for pre-order now and will be released on April 7th, 2022. Jerry and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Jerry, for coming on. I I mean, I was uh, quite shocked when I got the uh, first missive from uh, you and Jim about uh, your book, Prolonging the Agony, but you know, your, your first book had come out from a, a major publisher. I was, you know, I had gotten a copy and I was expecting it to come out from then. And then I get a email and they, you tell me they aren't gonna publish your, your second book even after the first book did very well with them. Strangely, no effort was made to um, publicize the book. Which book? And, which and book was quick, that? I think it would help to know which book are we talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's um, called "Hidden History: The Secret Origins of the First World War." In fact, it, it merges into "Prolonging the Agony," which, uh, thankfully, Chris picked up and and ran with. But it was a bit of a body blow when the publishers who had initially shown such interest turned around and just wanted it blanked. Some people would rather we not know our our history or they only want us to know the history that they they want to to push. And so how did you come across this story? I had written um, a play about two local lads. We live in a very small village, well, not, village, very small town, four and a half thousand people. And two two boys from this town uh, won the Victoria Cross in the First World War. The, these high prestigious medals, 13 days apart in the same battle, and nobody realized this. And there was no monument, there was no acknowledgement. So that was my in and interest. I don't know, play about this. It went down very well. Jim was one who came to see it. He chatted to me afterwards about the way the First World War has been misconstrued deliberately. It it took him quite some time, but he eventually convinced me that that really um, I should do this with him. And so we began a a partnership that from probably from about 2010 to 2016. And we researched and researched, but there was one mantra that we both believed in, and I think I, I hold to this, and that is we are lied to. Governments, virtually every government, continually wants to put themselves in a good light, and sometimes will do absolutely anything to ensure that. Often we found that there were completely contrary ideas put forward by other more eminent historians, I would have to say, regularly from Oxford University. Um, And this too led us to ask questions about 
how do you guys teach history? And, and in actual fact, from, from this came a lot of discussion between the two of us about cognitive dissonance. If you have been taught something or your parents believe something and, and, and you deeply believe the same thing, it's really difficult to challenge these internal thoughts and to accept that there might be another side to this coin. But when you do, when it becomes very evident that you have been misled, it, it can lead to quite a deep, a deep anger um, that, that such an impertinence be placed upon the whole country or countries or world and something really should be done about at least trying to tease out a small part of that. I mean, I, I, have, I have no conceit that what we have done is all that needs to be done. If we can encourage anyone else to pick up that thread and knit a story which is powerful and, and which resonates with the truth, that would be a great service. And, and I sincerely hope that you know, one of your listeners, many of your listeners, might, might be encouraged by that. There is so much more to be done. You you'd believe you had believed the history you've been told on World War One for for many many years and you know, taught. Yes, don't forget and taught. Yeah, right, right. So so what was the uh, first big thing that that you came across that really opened your eyes and and you know said, boy, I, I've got to dig deeper in this. The very first one was. During an argument about the blockade, blockade of uh, Germany in the First World War. Now, this was written by an Admiral Consett, who at the time was a British representative in Sweden. And uh, he was seeing what was happening. Allegedly, there was a blockade. His book was saying, This is ridiculous. You should stop this. I've been, I've been to the War Office, I've been to the Foreign Office. What you're telling everyone is absolutely untrue. So began to research that. That seemed like a good point. And Jim and I always triangulated as best we could to, to try and have at least three sources that would say, hold on, that's true, or hold on, that's not true. It, what we, it's what we have called finding a diamond in a coal field. It's amazing how this can happen once your antennae are up. In this instance, there was a reference to a parliamentary meeting in London in Westminster. Trace that back in Hansard, which is a record of everything that said, lo and behold, indeed had this debate in 1922. So what, what the man was saying was suddenly so important that Parliament had to discuss it. What was interesting, again, was how the government kind of sidelined it. What happened was they got Lord Grey, Earl Grey, uh, the man who had been the Foreign Secretary. Now, he was almost blind by that time. He had, a, he had an eye defect, which would, it just got worse and worse. And the big joke inside the parliamentary inquisition, if you like, was Grey was asked the question, have you read the book, sir? Answer from somebody behind him, good Lord, man, the Viking could hardly see at all. And everybody thought this was hilariously funny. 
and they managed to get themselves off the hook on this one. But there it was. What ad and it's very difficult to knock back an admiral who is so incensed that he and he knows that the truth is that all of these firms and companies and some were American, but then America wasn't at war, so that was breaking nothing. But many were British, and Britain was at war, and many were re-exporting, which was absolutely horrendous. And there were coal companies. Can you imagine coal being the sole fuel, really, for powering just about everything in our country, selling to Germany during the earliest two years of the First World War? So that's just one small example of how, by dogged investigation, by trying to make sure that you've got connections, that what that claim is is actually backed up by something that you can say, hey, that happened in Parliament. Now tell me I'm wrong. Your, your book is amazingly uh, detailed and, and, you know, tells the story of, of, of all this uh, oh, complicity and, and corruption. And, and one of the uh, biggest things that you talk about is this, uh, uh, these mines and, and uh, steel factories that, that are kind of on the French-German border and stuff. You know, I, I go back to my, my, my friend Tony Sutton, who, who you know, produced a book yeah. that showed that, you know, uh, the Vietnam War couldn't have been operated. Uh, we couldn't have had the war because uh, the Russians were supplying the, uh, the armaments for it. And we allowed all of, uh, of the resupply and all of that to happen uh, so that they could have the war. So World War I, it, it boggles the mind when, when, you, when you read your book and you see all the manipulation that was put in place to have the war. And then, you know, your book from us, Prolonging the Agony, you know, shows how they made the war continually happen why? Why did people do that? Why, you know, what, what's your thoughts? I once had a, a professor who um, said that all wars are economic. And of course, there were, they were carving up the world. Let's not forget that at that point in time. And in fact, uh, the, the, Germany had many, many holdings throughout, throughout Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, other parts of the world, and Britain was an empire that wanted to grow into a bigger empire. At that point in time, America most certainly wasn't. And basically, there were, there were groups of, let's call them interested parties, both in Britain, in Russia, and in France, big business. And we're talking here about the what's called the Comité des Forges, the, the committee of the, the forge masters, the iron steel makers. Now, iron steel makers stand to make mega bucks when it comes to a war, even more so than today in, in, in like terms. And there was a lot of uh, bad blood between France and Germany back to a, another war. The key, the key players, I, I would argue, were in London, uh, but they kept, they played a very cautious game. On the continent, the president of France and the Tsar of Russia 
had signed um, treaties, which, uh, you know, if, if anybody, by that they meant Germany, if Germany attacked Russia, France would come on board immediately and vice versa. What they didn't know that was secretly from about 1906, Britain was also, had also promised secretly that they too would come on board if this actually transpired. And the backers of this war were basically politicians who saw in it greatness for themselves, industrialists, bankers, war is a delight for bankers in very many cases. And at that particular point in time, you have in the States, J.P. Morgan, mega banks who can loan to governments, families with huge wealth like the Rothschilds. These people had invested in war. The population, through some ridiculous press publicities and propaganda, had been prepared for the outbreak or the likelihood of it. But in fact, there had been several false starts in 1911, 1912. When it happened in 1914, everyone was looking the wrong way because in Britain, there was tremendous trouble in Ireland and everyone was facing, Britain was facing, the headlines were all about the potential for there to be a rebellion in Dublin. The first troops that were, that were uh, amassed for the First World War in Britain thought that they were going to be sent to Ireland. The French, they were very cautious too. They didn't take a single move until they were absolutely certain that the Tsar would kick things off. The, the, the Tsar would mobilize his army and come on board. And that's exactly what happened. And a lot of that's covered in the book you so happily talked about, which will be out next month. Beyond Revanche, the death of La Belle Epoque. You had yep. the uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1905. It was basically the bankers were loaning money to both sides. And it, it, it you know, it finally got the, the banker said, listen, we, we aren't going to, you know, we aren't going to loan any more money on this game. And uh, they had the uh, peace treaty and you had a bunch of skull and bones people there. You also have this thing about armaments and the growth of the tools of war and, and yeah. how uh, war, war is waged and armaments have a, uh, shelf life right and and a lot of times we find that uh when the shelf life of some of these armaments are are, are going out uh, there there tends to be conflicts because you know they gotta put the armaments out there and then you also have a, a a thing where they're developing new armaments and so they have to have uh, conflicts to see how these uh, new armaments uh work and we the people just get uh, get the shaft on all of this. Yeah, we um, get sucked into it and we, we become the victims of you know, the desires and the profits of other people. Right. There's no, there's no avoiding that. It, it, that has happened and, and sadly it's continuing to happen. But we mustn't get pessimistic. I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, the more that information that we get out there and the more that we you know, talk about this, 
hopefully it's harder for these people um, to uh, create these things. I was shocked at a European conference in 2014. It was a commemorative event for the First World War, and it was couched very carefully in a great sense of unity and, uh, you know, joint regret. There were a number of key people there, the German ambassador, a German historian who wouldn't talk to me, but that's fine. Uh, the chair of the, the meeting, who was a really able and sharp lady, she was the principal of one of the universities in Belgium. And we got into this question. I asked a question about this whole blockade business. The ambassador didn't have a clue. The professor kind of gave him a small whisper in his ear, probably to say that man's just stirring things, ignore him. And as I sat down, I reached out to the chair and said to her, what do you teach about the war in Belgian schools? And there was a moment's silence. And she said, oh, we don't. Sorry, I probably lost something in translation there. In your school curriculum, in your history, uh, what do you teach about the First World War? Is it about reconciliation? Is it about the hardship? It's not on the curriculum. I, I, I sat down, I think my jaw hit the floor before my bottom hit the chair. I, 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 I just couldn't, I couldn't believe this. If we don't know where we've been, you know, they can uh, try and take us most anywhere. And, you know, I mean, and, and it's quite the established fact that, you know, World War II was uh, uh, quite uh, financed a lot by, uh, you know, Americans, uh, a lot of the people in, in, in Skull and Bones and uh, whatnot. And uh, we wonder it's why. I, mean, you know, I was, I was uh, raised heavily on uh, World War II, all my... Uh, aunts and uncles and everybody was in yeah. it. It was a uh, quote-unquote good war. Uh, <laughs> how yeah. good war can be. I can, if I can share a, a secret with you. And, until I was about 10, I actually thought that Alan Ladd and American tanks were the only things that won the Second World War. And that seemed to me to be the message, I don't say that disrespectfully at all, but that's how no. Hollywood seemed to put it out. They've treated, I, I must say, I'm in admiration of many of the um, Hollywood productions about. Uh, well, you Vietnam. know, um, I, I was in love with Greer Garson and Mrs. Miniver had, I'm sure, something to do with that, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and whatnot. But let's, uh, you know, today is uh, March 9th, 2022. Is, is your what, what, what's your thoughts on, on this current uh, situation? This conversation continues in episode 87.